This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Well, this sucks. That sounds like a fun room to go into then if you need a thumbprint to get in there. Oh, yeah. There's all kinds of goodies in there. So thanks for hopping on the show, bud. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So uh, you're down in Oregon. Whereabouts? Uh, So I'm at a G4 archery and, well, G4 outdoors. Um, And uh, so it's in North Plains, Oregon, which is about mm, 20 miles west of Portland. So we're not with all the crazies in Portland. We're uh, North Plains is like 1,200 people. We first got kind of funny i was always joking i was like where's a good place to eat and they're like oh, across the street where's a good place to get coffee across the street like everything's across <laughs> the street here. Um, yeah easy to so, get to that's nice yeah. you gotta like yeah. that small yeah. town yeah. but you're you were uh you were at the bow rack for a long time i was yeah um that was actually so when i when i first started shooting in uh was that 2000 so i was 12 uh i went to went to the bow rack. I didn't know any better. I was just a local shop, you know? Um, and then ended up, you know, in my mid twenties, uh, ended up working there. <laughs> so, and I was there for about eight years before I came up here. Um, nice. Love, love Wayne and Lisa, love the shop. Um, yeah, nothing but good things to say about that. It was you know, probably the best, best eight year span of the job I've had. So yeah, yeah. it was a lot of, lots of great experience, met lots of great people, um, learned a lot. And, uh, yeah, that's translated into a career up here now. So, yeah, man, I've always often wondered. There was uh, the local archery shop here was for sale from the previous owner, but I uh, I found out about it too late. Yeah, yeah, if you need to own, own a shop. Yeah, and yeah. I I don't know about I don't know what the rules are in Canada. I know in in the U.S. it's it's tricky buying a shop because a lot of people assume that the dealerships come with the purchase of the shop, um, even if the name stays the same, and it's it's not the case. So. Um, when you 
take over a shop, you have to now apply for new dealership, which oh. usually isn't a huge really? deal because you're not uh, too close to other dealers. So it's kind of like a car dealership yeah. based on the population in an area, uh, you know, like up here, uh, because Portland and the surrounding area is close to 2 million people um, with all the suburbs and whatnot, you know, the distance, the radius from shop to shop can be, I think it's like 18 miles. Uh, oh. Down in Eugene, which is only 150,000 people, it's 35 miles. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you, if they're like, let's say you bought a shop that was the original Matthews dealer, and then two shops open up within, you know, 20 miles of you, or opened up within 20 miles of that original shop, when you buy it, now you're the one competing with them, even though they got the dealership prior or, you know, after you yeah. got it. Uh, so it's, it's a tricky deal, but it's, it's a lot of fun. I mean, you know, ownership can be, it can be tricky um, for sure, but it's, it's, it's a labor of love, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It'd just be, uh, I mean, archery is pretty much uh, the lifestyle. So anyway, for yeah. the last, last handful of years. So it'd just yeah. be cool to do something that you just love to do all day, day in and day out. I don't know. Does it get, yeah. does it get kind of like a marriage? <laughs> it, you know, from <laughs> by so our, our seasons down here open up, you know, basically in September, like that last week of August um, is usually the opener of bow season here. Mm -hmm. And I, I can tell you that by about, you know, July 20th, I'm about over it. <laughs> it's yeah. like, you know, Memorial Day. It's like after Memorial Day is when everybody, which is that last weekend in May, um, that's when everybody kind of starts dusting off the stuff out of the closet and thinking about new strings and arrows and bows yeah. and this and that. Really? Um, it gets it gets pretty freaking wild. I mean, the bow rack, especially like they have, you know, we're hoping to bring that up here. We have a huge customer base there. They have, they have, they're busy, but they, they want to kind of take it to that next level. Um, and you know, the bow rack, I mean, it, it's not uncommon in that store to have 15 to 18 people waiting, you know, whether it's a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever, um, waiting for setups or arrows or whatever from that, you know, June through August period. Oh, yeah. um, so it gets the first couple of years, the first couple of summers was definitely a little bit stressful just because you look out and there's this sea of eyes looking at you like, you know, when are you going to get to me? When are you going to get to me? Uh, but you end up just, you know, getting comfortable with it and realizing that you're at least for myself, I'm much more efficient when I just, you know, start a job, finish that job, move on to the next person rather yeah. than trying to do eight things half ass at once. It's like just. Yeah. you know slow is smooth smooth is fast as the saying goes so yeah that's a process and that's a skill you gotta learn i remember when i first started i mean wasn't in to do with fixing bows or anything but just in general at work in my business yeah you 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 get overwhelmed with all the work you have and then you kind of like just take small bites out of each each plate thinking that you're going to keep everyone happy but in the long run you're better off just you know, just getting the job done quick or just getting the job done properly and then moving on to the next. And like you get to them when you get to them. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You end up having to go back and fix things, which takes longer than just, you know, waiting an extra 10 minutes to get it done right the first time. So yeah, guess business wise, it's a good problem to have as well. Yes. Better than looking out and being like, where is everybody? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys stay fairly busy there year round? Uh, yeah. So, you know, I've only been up here for a month and a half now, um, at the bow rack, definitely it's busy. The slow time of year for pretty much every archery shop on the West coast anyway, is, you know, that like middle of September through like December is the, the slow time of year because everybody's got their stuff for hunting season. The new bows don't come out till end of November, early December. Yeah. 
So nobody's really buying a bow that time of year. Um, people will come in for little things. Like we have a, you know, a late deer season here that opens for archery that opens in uh, usually that second week in November and runs for three weeks. Uh, and so we get guys coming in buying, you know, broadheads and like smoking a bottle and, you know, scent yeah. killer and stuff like that. But um, not a lot of, not a lot of stuff to do. So that's when we generally do our inventory and merchandising and just clean up after the freaking whirlwind that was summer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're pretty steady down there up here. You know, we've definitely been getting more traffic. Um, I didn't realize how many customers drove all the way from up here down to the bow rack to get their stuff worked on. Um, and so now, you know, social media and everything we're able to put out that I'm up here. Um, oh, yeah. so there's a lot of people that are like, Oh, you used to work on my bow down there. You just saved me a two hour drive. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. Hoping to get word out. We got a couple of new guys that I just hired. Um, so trying to get them all trained up before, before summer, cause we're going to, we're going to need them. It's going to be That's all cool. hands on deck for sure. So That's about the same kind of drive that I have too, for it's just not everything spread out where I am. Like we, yeah. the closest city to me is Calgary, Alberta. It's not yeah. that far. It's two and a half hours. You might as well say three to a shop. Uh, I usually head down south in Jaffrey here, and it's about two hours to get to that guy. But again, it's quality too. I know when I go there, I'm not leap. He, he, he's kind of got the same mantra as you, you know, like you go into the shop, you're not leaving the shop until he's happy with what right. he's sending out the door with. Yeah. And, fixed, you know, that's, so. I'm happy to hear that you have that because a lot of what I hear on my, my YouTube channel and Instagram is the, the lack of that attention to detail. Yeah. Um, there's, I think there's a lot of, a lot of shops, unfortunately, where, you know, they're in their mind, their job is to sell you a bow and get you out the door mm -hmm. and then sell the next guy a bow and get them out the door. Mm -hmm. Um, and sure you'll, you'll get that first time sale, but that's not, what's going to get your repeat business. Yeah. Um, you know, at the bow rack, I was shocked. I mean, we'd have people fly out from Texas and, and Georgia and all this stuff. And, and some of that is the reach that they have with Cam Haynes. Cause that's his local shop. You know, he wears his hat on the Joe Rogan podcast and boom, you know, yeah. 17 million people see it. Uh, but a lot of that is just, you know, Wayne has been in the industry for 35 years now uh, and he's a perfectionist. You know, he, like you were saying with, with the guy who owns your shop or the shop you go to, he's not happy if you're not happy when you leave, mm -hmm. you know, he's yeah. going to take that extra five minutes to make sure that it's not tearing a quarter inch left. He's not going to just take the bow in the back room and come out with it and tell you that it's, it's tuned. You know, he's going to have you shoot it. Um, and a lot of, a lot of when you're tuning a bow and working with equipment is working with the person as well. Um, you know, I, I don't care what I do to a bow. If somebody grabs that, that grip and just cranks it like a gooseneck, you're never going to get that bow to tune. So we work, you know, what, what he taught me was to work with the person as much as the bow. Uh, and that does, that takes a little extra time, but at the end, yeah. you know, they're going to go have a lot more success and be a lot happier and have a lot more fun which is going to turn into business further down the road. So oh, absolutely. When I'm at a 3d shoot and it's close to you and you've been my guy that set me up and everything. And it's like, Oh man, I'm having these problems with this or this. And it's like, okay, you need to, here's this guy's number. You need to go talk to him. Um, yeah. You're, you're, you're not going to leave until it's, until it's good to go. Yeah. And then that person's going to do the same thing and so on and so forth. And you will yeah. get those guys driving three, four hours. Yeah. To see you yeah. It's and it's, and I mean, it's worth it. You know, when you figure the amount of money that you invest in some of this equipment, I mean, especially if you're buying it all new, like let's say, you know, you've got a bow that's 10 years old and you want a new site, new rest, new bow, arrows, stabilizer. I mean, you're, you can be $3,200 into a bow real quick. Easy. And so, you know, to maximize the potential of that equipment, you, in my opinion, you have to know somebody who, who A, knows what they're doing and is willing to take the extra time to do it. 
Um, and in, in my opinion, like, you know, here and at the bow rack, um, you know, if somebody's going to spend $450 on a site, we're, we're not going to charge them $30 to install it. Like we're, we're going to install it, make sure all the accesses are leveled the way they should be. Um, and that way, again, you're, you're getting the most out of your equipment. Cause if you spend $450 on a site and the shop doesn't level the accesses, you know, it's like buying a Ferrari with used tires on it. Like why, mm -hmm. I mean, why would you do yeah. that? You know? So um, I think that's, yeah, I think that's a really important thing. And unfortunately, I think there's a lot of shops and it might just be ignorance. It might just be laziness, uh, but they, they don't take that. They don't go the extra mile, so to speak. Um, yeah, I know a lot of shops and I know like a lot of guys I talk to, they buy a bow and then they, they, they'll buy everything in the shop. The shop just puts the rest on. Sure, they'll, they'll measure it to 13 sixteenths. They'll level yeah. it, put their peep sight in for them, have them draw back, time it, do everything. But they're not like... They're not checking the timing on the bow. And right. And then you talk to the people and they're like, oh, it's brand new. I'm like, okay, well, did did your shop check your timing? Because like yeah, I know just because it's brand new, chances are that it's not timed properly. Like there's yeah. a big misconception that just because you buy it brand new, that it's perfect, but it's not. There's, like, and a lot of shops exactly. don't go through that process of doing that. Yeah, there's nobody at the Matthews factory. Like one of the most common things I hear is guys message me and say hey like i'm noticing some crazy arrow flight um i'm shooting them you know like a matthews whatever v3 uh and i said well have you shot it through paper and they go no uh the shop said it was tuned from the factory and i'm going okay there's not a guy at matthews who knows just you know randomly what draw length you're shooting what arrow spine you're shooting what draw weight you're shooting what release you're shooting like yeah. all that stuff goes into how an arrow comes out of a bow they put the two most common top hat sizes in that bow and send it out the door and they get the timing close, but even just changing the draw length module. Like if I take, if I have an F mod when the bow comes out of the box and I put a B mod on it, usually the timing changes. Mm -hmm. And I don't know the physics behind that, but it, it seems to be a thing. So, you know, and it doesn't take long. I mean, looking at the timing and setting it take maybe two minutes, you know, not like this big involved process. So, Oh, no, yeah, I mean, I, I buy a new, I buy, I've had lots of new bows and I don't remember like all the, since I had, a, since I got a press and everything and started getting into that, all, every bow that I bought the time I had to adjust the timing a little bit. I mean, not a lot on some of them, but some yeah. more than others. Yeah. And some bows are a lot more sensitive to it than others. Yeah. Uh, you know, Botex, especially the older Botex, like if you look at, oh, like the, like the insanities and the S or the, uh, what was that? Like the RPMs and the destroyers. Like if that top cam is open, just an eighth of an inch, it's going to shoot a half inch tail high through paper. Mm -hmm. And then you put, you know, a half a twist in each of the top yokes and close it up and boom, it shoots level. Right. Now Matthews with that EVS system, you know, they, they don't seem to be as sensitive to it, but it does affect how that back wall feels. Um, you're going to a little spongier wall. Uh, and, you know, it, to me, it's just, you want to just make sure your equipment, I like to bulletproof my equipment so that I know when I miss, it was me, not my mm -hmm. bow, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, some people have the opposite train of thought. And <laughs> I mean, sometimes I'd like an excuse <laughs> if I, <laughs> it'd be nice to be able to blame the bow <laughs> when yeah. I make some shots. But, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, I, like I said, I just want to bulletproof it. And if, if yeah, I miss, I had a buddy I over, I had a buddy over last night and he got a brand new bow. And, uh, so he brought it over and we set it up. Sure enough, the timing was out. His site wasn't, his arrest wasn't set up properly. So we set that all up. We got it good. I'm like, Hey, shoot through some paper here. And he shoots. I'm like, Hey, shoot again. Shoots. He shot five arrows and they're all different. Like every arrow was different. They're tailing different on every, almost like everyone. I was like, okay, well, I, I think what we need to do is we just kind of leave this for now. 
and yeah. you just need to go to you need to get at the range and start putting some arrows down range and like yeah and then we'll, you'll come come back in a couple months and then we'll shoot a paper again because like yeah try to get that consistency down a little bit yeah yeah it's yeah i get that a lot got... with, you know the internet is a beautiful and horrible thing all at the same time uh with the youtube channel and some of the tuning videos i make about like bear shaft tuning and knock tuning you know i'll get guys they, they bought their first bow it's a week old and i mean i'm i'm all for them like learning as much as they can that's great uh but bear shaft tuning especially like it's such a sensitive thing there's not a vein on an arrow i mean you know when i'm doing it i'll shoot the same arrow three or four times and make sure that i'm getting the same hole because it mm -hmm. takes nothing to influence a bear shaft yeah. so there's a lot of times there's kind of a point of diminishing returns with tuning uh in terms with newer shooters where it's like okay once once you can do the same thing five times in a row, then then we'll talk about bear shaft shooting. Right now, we're just going to get this bow utility, yeah. you know, a, as close to a bullet hole as you can with a flat shaft, and then you need to just go shoot it. Yeah. Um, you know, Levi Morgan is going to be able to take. Is that making noise? Let me turn that off. Levi Morgan is going to be able to take uh, a you know a diamond infinite edge that's ripping four inches tail left and out shoot most people with the most perfectly tuned bow in the world because yeah. he is a machine <laughs> more so than the yeah. bow yeah you know um so yeah tuning tuning's a big one i mean people really go down the rabbit hole with it um i think they i think a lot of people think that pros have all these like secret you know they have this book of knowledge that they're not sharing on how to tune a bow and that's why they're so good and it's not it's because they shoot two to four hundred arrows a day yeah because <laughs> oh, it's yeah. their job you know, yep. you taught, if you taught or if you treated your shooting like a nine to five job, you'd be able to achieve that same level of accuracy, mm -hmm. you know, 30 arrows a week. I'm going to cut it. So and when that's, and then when that's your thing too, you are going to go down that rabbit hole of learning how to tune and what is going on. So when you can take yourself out of the equation, you know, like you've got that repetition and it's like, okay, something's going on. Then at least, you know, you can check to check your timing like these are the steps I'm going to check to make sure my bow is good. Yeah. Either they're good or they're not. And if the bow is good, okay, well, maybe it's time to just, I think a person's got to go into it too, where you have to be able to admit that more often than not, it's going to be you. Yeah. It's got the issue. You know what? I, I do it all the time. I'll set a tripod. I'll film myself shooting from different angles and I'll watch yeah. it over and over and over be like, oh, okay, this is that shot that yeah. Elbow didn't end up. It felt funny and, oh, oh, I did something different there. Yeah, That's why right there, yeah. you got to be open to it. Because if you're not, you're not going to get better. You have right. to mess up to get better, but you have to be willing to learn from it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think when it comes to a lot of the tuning methods, whether it's like group tuning, knock tuning, all that stuff, I think a lot of people think it's going to take their group like if they, if they do that, it's going to take their group from a foot at 80 yards down to two inches. And it's not what, what a lot of these tuning things do, especially with the arrows in terms of knock tuning and spine alignment and stuff like that. And play with point weight and arrow length, it's going to absorb some of the mistakes you make. And what I mean by that is it's rather than being a four inch miss, it's going to be a two and a half inch miss, you know? So it's not taking your group from a basketball to a golf ball. It's taking your group from a softball to, you know, a baseball. Maybe, you know, it's just, it's that little shrinkage, which in target archery, you know, when you're talking about cutting lines, basically like touching a line, you know, if you can get an arrow that gives you a quarter inch of forgiveness and point of impact, you know, that, that can be the difference between, you know, making a shoot off and not making the shoot off or, you know, hitting that X or not hitting that X. But from a hunting standpoint, you know, really if <laughs> you got a, you got a pretty good area yeah. that you can hit. Um, yeah. And then the other thing that I see a lot is, 
you know, what if you're, and I don't know if there's any science on this, but in terms of, you know, when you're playing with bear shaft tuning and this and like knock tuning and this and that, like if let's say you're hitting the, the left edge of the 10 ring at 40 yards, did, did you actually, did the bear shaft tuning actually cause you to hit a quarter inch left or are you a quarter inch right of where you might've hit if you didn't hit or, if you, <laughs> yeah. you know, or like, are you right or left? It's yeah. like, and oh, I don't know the answer to that. I think there, there at, at, in archery, there is just a certain aspect of, of, of luck <laughs> yeah. and preparation and good shot execution and all that will increase the odds of that luck happening. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun rabbit hole to go down with all the tuning stuff, but it can also, I think you can start banging your head against the wall and really oh, yeah. over things. Um, when I used to shoot tournaments a lot, you know, at some point you just got it. And I did this when I was coaching that Maya girl too, who's on the junior national team. I would just say, you know, she'd be in a struggle and, you know, miss a few in a row. And I'd be like, look, aim the bow, shoot the bow. That's all you got to do. Yeah. Put the pin in the middle and shoot the bow. It's like, just take it back to the basics. You know, don't worry if uh, thinking about, you know, your release hand is 0.7 degrees off of what it was the, the shot before. It's like, aim the bow, shoot the bow. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it, there's a tendency for people to overthink a lot of stuff when it comes to form and and tuning and all that um that's not to say that it's not important i don't want to downplay the importance of proper form and a well-tuned bow um but there's got to be there's got to be a level of consistency in the shooter to where you can tell is that the bow or is that just me not being able to hold the pin steady at 80 yards you know yeah Um, yeah there's definitely a line in the sand and it's it's yeah it's funny it it's like you said i mean um it, social media i mean all this stuff too it just puts more pressure on guys they they just for some reason they pick up a bow like i know guys that have picked up a bow a year ago and they expect within a year to be you know to be sh- hitting tax at 50 yards right and you're like and you're like man like how many arrows did you shoot this year a thousand two thousand like yeah. that's not enough that's like yeah not even There's close to enough pro shoot a thousand arrows a week <laughs> yeah, like do that. A, like start doing that a month. Like every day, do that a month. Don't shoot. Yeah. Come home and shoot ten arrows, and then say, and then like think you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna be hitting X's at fifty yards. It just ain't gonna happen. Like you you gotta have some. There's gotta be some perspective here. Like yeah, absolutely. Yeah, hundred percent agree with that. Well, and then when you're hunting too, I mean, it's it's a whole different ball game. It doesn't like, hey man, you can hit you can hit an you can hit a bottle cap at hundred yards every time. But if you're a shitty hunter. Ain't gonna do you any fucking good anyway. Because you're gonna get exactly. winded, you're gonna get busted, you're gonna get it doesn't really matter. Yeah. So we joke about that all the time. Like I know guys that you know they come in and when they're shooting on paper in here, it's like like, damn dude, is this your first day shooting? I mean, it's all over the place, but every single animal that steps in front of them dies. Yeah. Uh, and then there's guys that come in and I mean they don't miss an X in a week and a half, and they can't even tell you if they're looking through the fucking peep site when an animal steps in front of them. <laughs> yeah. Like there and people respond to pressure different ways. Some people will get hyper focused, whether that's when animals in front of them or it's you know to win a tournament. Then there's other people who, you know, it's like like you know, when I used to play uh play sports, we always there's guys that are always practice players, right? Lights out in practice, you put them in a game and they were oh for six, you know. Yeah. They couldn't they couldn't hit a bucket to save their lives. Um, and there's people that just respond differently to pressure. Some people it puts them in this like hyper-focused, you know, present moment. And other yeah. people were, like I said, they literally cannot tell you if they're even looking through their peep site, yeah, even though they yeah. just won the national tournament you know, two weeks prior. So it's like, 
it's yeah it's funny how that happens i mean and especially like you were saying if you can't get an animal to stand in front of you or even find an animal (laughs) (laughs) who cares how good of a shot you are like have fun shooting grouse all day yeah yeah no doubt yeah Yeah. um but like you said i mean you don't you don't need on it it's a lot different when you're shooting at a target to an animal Uh, animal i mean Yes, if you get an animal broadside at 40 yards, it's going to, you know, you can hit a dinner plate, you're you're pretty much golden. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's a lot, like I said, there's a lot of people. And I think a big thing with animals, too, is people are looking at the whole animal mm-hmm. rather than picking a spot on that animal. You know, like you always hear the cl- cliche things like never look at the horns, never look at the horns. And that's because literally your eye, your arm, like your hand will follow where your eye goes. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm aiming at a target and then I move my vision to six inches high when i look back at my pin guess what my pin has floated a couple inches above the spot mm-hmm. aim um, small miss small exactly i noticed that a lot when i was uh i went to that total archery challenge two years ago um and i spent a lot of time you know especially at the shop like most of my practice is at the shop after work and stuff so and out at wayne's range um and so you know i shot a lot of just targets like you know white dot on a black face or orange dots or whatever which there's no guessing where you're aiming with that, right? Like it draws your eye right to the center. It's pretty easy to figure out where to aim. Um, I wasn't shooting a lot of 3D targets. And so when I started to practice for that and going to these 3D shoots on targets like, um, oh, like the fallow deer or, or cheetahs where they're covered in spots, mm-hmm. it's like, I felt like I couldn't hold steady. It's like my pin just would not settle. And then what I realized was it's because I wasn't picking a particular spot to aim at on that deer. I was seeing my eye was focus on a group like that and kind of wandering from spot to spot in an area. And in doing so, my pin was essentially following my eye around. So my pin's doing this because then I'd step over to the other target with a spot, you know, like a, like a field target with a spot and boom, the pin would settle. Like, yeah. What the hell is going on? And so then I, I started really focusing on like, you know, okay, you need to, you need to hold, you know, four o'clock on that black dot. That's three inches back from that seam or whatever. And then I started to be able to settle that pin and actually, shoot pretty well on 3d targets yeah Um, and that's a big thing with 3d is a lot of time you're not aiming at something you're aiming off of something Mm -hmm. right because you know if it's a close target and the lighting's good you might be able to see the 12 rings um if you have a scope if you're not shooting a scope though you know a lot of times it's like okay the the 10 ring or the 12 ring is you know four inches or two inches low and an inch and a half or two inches right of that little dark spot Mm -hmm. So you don't want to look at the dark spot because then guess where your pin goes? The dark yeah. spot. But you need to keep that dark spot in reference to where your pin needs to be. So it's a it's a tricky game, man. Like I think 3D shooters like Levi Morgan and Dan McCarthy and those guys, I mean, I think that's it's one of the hardest games to be good at. And some of the scores that are being shot now are just fucking insane. <laughs> like Yeah. It's it's a whole it's it's definitely turned and like it's it's evolved into this whole other level of play it's pretty impressive yeah yeah. so we don't have uh we don't have nearly the 3d shoots up here that you guys have down there but uh yeah they're they're starting to get get more popular up here so which is nice i mean bow hunting in general archery in general it's not nearly as as popular as it is down there but uh, slowly gaining traction which is nice uh it's good are you and your guys you're in ontario or alberta british columbia british columbia Columbia. okay okay So there is, and I have noticed quite a few more, you know, I think COVID really put a a damper on a lot of the 3D shoots that were around, but I'm starting to see advertising for this spring and summer already. And guys are ramping up again. So I'm, I'm hoping to see, you know, lots of people saying that they were busy. And I think a lot of people put their bows away 
was the issue for like last year and mm-hmm. all the all the main shoots around here it was a steady like a couple hundred people at these shoots you know guaranteed every year and yeah. they were down 50 percent. so it's not like people didn't know what was happening right i think there was a lot of people that actually just hung up their bows and yeah haven't gotten back into it yeah so that's that's crazy to hear because down here it was the exact opposite like when COVID hit, you know, when I was, I was the bow rack at the time, obviously. And um, I remember we had a, a meeting when they had just announced that, you know, all these shutdowns were happening and whatnot. And I remember Wayne saying like, we're going to, we're going to try to keep everybody on as long as we can. Um, you know, we're just kind of unsure what's going to be going on. Shit. We had to hire two more people. <laughs> like, <laughs> really? It went crazy. Everybody. Well, I mean, it makes sense. Like everybody's stuck at home. Yeah. Like going crazy with their kids. They needed, yeah. they wanted something they could do outdoors. They got, a, you know, a, their whatever, their little stipend check um, for 1400 bucks. And so a lot of people that had kind of thrown around the idea in the past, but they're like, oh, I'm too busy or I don't have the money or whatever. Well, now they got the time and they got the money. Yeah. And I mean, we sold so many recurve setups. Like people just come in they're like, yeah, I just want to plink around in my backyard. I want like a, you know, 30 pound recurve and tons of new bow hunters. Um, and I'd never seen, in 2021, I had never seen so many like Cabela's poster boys in the woods. It's like, really? <laughs> you can tell they went into Cabela's and they're like, hey, I'm going elk hunting. And the salesman was like, here's what you need. <laughs> like, here's your package. Brand new boots, brand new camo, <laughs> like brand new, just, you know, head to toe, like right out of the, right out of the aisle of Cabela's. Um, yeah. Well, I know like up here, we had that one year, 2020, we had record sales for Hunter Tags bought in yeah. 2020. Yeah. Yeah. It was the same down here. I think 20, I think 2020 was the first year nationwide that there was more hunting licenses sold than the prior year since like the seventies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Awesome. It hit records. Like even up here, that was like the eighties was like, <clears throat> and there was like, like hundreds of thousands of tags issued in the eighties, like each year. And then now it's, yeah, yeah. it's not even half of that up here. Huh. But I mean, like compared to down there, I know like we we've talked to other guests too. And I mean, we, we figured out we got just over a million hunters here and you guys have 16 million down there. So yeah. Uh, yeah. It's the same yeah. amount of space. I need to start hunting Canada. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've actually, yeah. I've really wanted to do that. Uh, that Vancouver Island, like blacktail hunt. Oh yeah. Yeah. It looks like a blast. The weather doesn't look like a blast, but no. everything looks really fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's uh there in the Charlotte mm-hmm. islands too, are, are, are pretty fun for chasing uh black. Yeah. Yeah, any of those. I mean, I've never killed a Sitka blacktail. They just they look awesome. Um, yeah. Hey, just put they're, them they're in your suitcase, there, right? bring them home. Yeah, you just yeah. tuck them under your arm and you just walk away with them. They're so small. Yeah, they're cool yeah. looking though. Yeah, yeah, they're awesome looking. I've heard. I don't know about there. I know um, Wayne and his son Nathan and a couple other guys. They've they've been up to Kodiak three times now, hunting them up there. And they said they're the most obese deer they've ever seen. Like they're not big. They still only weigh 120 pounds, but there's an inch and a half of tallow on them. Yeah, um, and yeah. That, I'm sure that's just the food chain up there. But uh, he said it's like some of the best blacktail venison he's ever had. Oh yeah, uh, nice up there. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hunt up there. But it's yeah, uh, one day. what's what's the deal with getting into Canada with a bow? Is it like trying to get in with a gun? No, is it pretty. Cool? I like no. don't try to come to Canada with a gun. They'll yeah, take it away, uh, and you're not going to get it back. Yeah, they're trying to take ours that yeah. sit in the closet. So. Yeah, you definitely yeah. don't want to come in here looking for We don't have any, here. though, Kevin. We, <laughs> yeah. We don't have, yeah, right. I don't have any <laughs> yeah. guns anyway. No, we just have bows, that's all. <laughs> Airsoft yeah. pistols yeah. and bows. Uh, you're not even allowed yeah. those up here. No, don't have those either. Don't worry about <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Well, you can have a water gun, <laughs> yeah. a water balloon, soaker. or a bow. 
yeah. as long as it has a wood stock, you can have the water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. Get coming in in and out is is easy with a bow. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, the uh, only thing you're gonna have to have an issue with, like in BC or whatever, is uh, coming from a different state or a different country. Um, it's not like we can host you. It's not like we can be like, oh yeah, you come meet us up here. We'll go for a little black bear hunt or something like that. Unfortunately, if you're coming from another country, uh, you have to go with a guide. Guide, yeah. Which is unfortunate, but it is what you know. We don't make the rules. How does How does Steve Rinella always do that? Then he's got money. Yeah, he's got a good, <laughs> yeah. he's got a good guide. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I guess he's actually. I guess he's in Alaska, isn't he? Yeah, he goes to Alaska. He's been to. I I remember watching the early meat eaters, and they're in the BC interior chasing grizzly yeah. bear. But yeah, uh, yeah um uh callahan he used to work for uh landers jeff landers and his outfit so um he oh, hooked yeah. up with that and that's who they did the bear hunt with but you can't hunt grizzly bear in bc anymore anyway they took that away took yeah that away then guys, they took all our guns guys, away um have you guys noticed you know like when you're out hunting it are is the are the bear numbers <laughs> like tangibly higher like are oh you yeah doing more, really yeah 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 like there was never there was never any shortage of bears grizzly bears or black bears um so um it it had nothing to do with the with the population of it It just that the government that got we had an unelected elected government take power and there was pressure from uh uh, anti-hunting organization in vancouver which is like the 75 percent of our province lives down there and um they were putting pressure on the government to get rid of this so-called trophy hunt so yeah uh, yeah i knew there was never any shortage of bears i just wondered if now that's you know like a bear behind every tree sort of deal Um, because that happened with us down here with cougars and bears um in 94 they outlawed hunting them with dogs uh and so it was it was pretty gnarly for deer especially so in 92 we had one of the worst winters since the 60s um even like especially on the east side of the state, the winter ranges for all the mule deer, uh, as low as they could get, had six to eight feet of snow that lasted until April. Holy uh, smokes. So we talked to one of the places we used to hunt in the Steens mountain range. We talked to one of those ranchers and just on their little 180 acre like hay plot down by their their farmhouse, uh, they picked up over 300 dead carcasses when the, when the snow melted. Yeah. So that happened in 92. Then they outlawed hunting cougars with dogs in 94. Um, so the deer population just got smacked in the face. And then as it was trying to recover, you had this influx of cats. Um, and you know, the state refuses to believe the way that they count them is so stupid. Like they do a flyover and say, Oh yeah, we saw two in a hundred miles. It's yeah. like, well, yeah. Cause you're trying to f- spot a cougar from a plane. <laughs> like, uh, and there's so many cats in this state. Um, you know, it's, and it's getting to the point where it's just a matter of time until somebody, somebody's kid gets grabbed out of their backyard and then maybe people will wake up, but, yeah, um, yeah, you know, unfortunately it's, it's, that's it's usually the way it, it has to come. And it's funny, those counts. I mean, I, I know like here you can, you can hunt, you can hunt, uh, cougars with, with dogs and stuff still. I mean, that, it, yeah, it's hard to hunt, hunt them without, I couldn't even imagine like, um, I've, yeah, I've tracked them down and chased them down before on foot and, and it's yeah. a lot of work. Oh Tons my gosh. I, I've. I've only seen, I mean, I've been in the woods, uh, not as much as a lot of people, but a decent amount since I was a kid. And I mean, I've only laid eyes on one and, you know, close enough that I didn't need binoculars like three times. Yeah. I've seen a little couple flashes of brown that I'm pretty sure were a cat, but, um, 
I mean, they are so freaking stealthy and there's, there's guys that they do call them in around here. Um, but a majority of the cats that are killed are just completely incidental. It's usually, you know, guys are elk hunting. Um, they're doing little calf calls or cow calls and you know, they're on some little skid road and a cat just pops out of the timber and they shoot it. Um, you know, very rarely do I know people actually go cougar hunting and kill a cougar. Yeah. Um, yeah, and they're, they're crafty, man. Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. I was just... we Pete and I talk about it all the time is like how many times you're walking through there and they're just sitting up in that tree looking down at you, watching you walk yeah. underneath them. Yeah. Or I can't oh. tell you how many times I come back, you know, from hunting and oh, this one spot I hunt up in the Cascades. There's I follow a trail for about a mile and a half and then break off that trail and go up in this old burn. And uh <clears throat> there's a little like low spot. There must be a spring right up the hill from the trail because there's it's just always wet right there in the trail. And uh, I probably eight times out of 10, when I come back through there, there's cat tracks over my tracks from the morning. Yeah. And, you know, they probably just sit on that water hole and just wait for whether it's a bird or a rabbit or a deer or whatever. Yeah. They've probably got eyes on me every time I walk by. Oh, yeah. Uh, It used to kind of freak me out anymore. I I don't really worry about it that much. But I I first started hunting alone when I was a kid, you know, when I was 16, 17, it was like every four seconds I was looking over my shoulder. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't make for a very enjoyable time out in the woods if you're worried about getting mauled by something out there. No. Well, especially no. now with all the bears and everything out there. It's like, yeah, you better not think about it because yeah. every little creek or crack, you can be, what's that? What's that? What's that? And it's probably nothing. Yeah. It's probably well, yeah. And most of the time, most <laughs> of, especially with bears, most of the time the bears, they know you're there and they're gone before you yeah. have any idea yeah. that they're around you. Grizzly yeah. bears and black bears, for the most part, they do, they don't want anything to do with you. Yeah, I've never. Well, this last year I hunted Wyoming for the first time, and we were we were in grizzly country according to Wyoming's you know population density maps, but we didn't have any issues. But it was it was definitely something. The first few days, it was kind of in the back of my mind when I was walking around. You know, like Montana and Wyoming, both their their incident rates with grizzlies have gone up exponentially every year. Yeah. Um, just as you know, these towns expand, and you get yeah. you got all these little dipshits from la moving up to montana and you know they want to they want to go on a nature hike so they just pick some random trail you know in october when the bears are (laughs) the berries are starting to go away and the bears are trying to pack on fat and pretty soon you got two dead chihuahuas and a you know and i think that's the other thing and those are the but the funny thing is though sorry the funny thing is those are the people who who are trying to who ban the hunt like those people like it drives me fucking nuts until something happens to them and then they're like oh yeah this is a problem i didn't realize it Yep. Yeah, absolutely. It's crazy. What were you saying there, Pete? Oh, I was going to say, you know, for a person who's not new to an area and for us hunters and stuff like that, or people who go out hiking and stuff, you're going to know the times of the years for certain areas. Like I know in the fall time when the kokanee are running around here, if I'm going to be, you know, heading in the direction of one of the creeks or something that is maybe heavily stocked with them. You know what? Right. There's probably a better chance than none. I'm going to run into some sort of bear. Could be yeah. a bear with cubs, maybe not. You know, but so you got to just you gotta use a little bit of common sense and be a little more aware of your surroundings yeah, when you're going so. into those areas. No different yeah. than slides and stuff like that. Like, yeah, a really good chance. You know, in that thick slide there, there's going to be a bear. It's prime habitat. Yeah, just you got a big on, blueberry patch on a hillside. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> Unfortunately, the elk kind of like those slides and everything too. So it's like, all right, well, this is part of the business, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Well, if the elk are there, you know, there's no bears around. So yeah. Do you guys there's have no good elk. opportunities up in BC? Elk? Yeah. Uh, we do. I mean, we have a, 
I mean, guys get elk every year. Um, we don't have the numbers like we used to have. We got like a lot of areas in BC are overlogged. Um, and then we had a lot of really bad forest fires. Road access is a big one. Yeah. Uh, and the wolves, wolves do a number. Yeah. We got a lot of wolves around. Yeah. So like they do a wolf call in Northern British Columbia. Um, but down the Southern part, they don't go for managing and that. I mean, we are allowed to take three wolves, but it's pretty tough to kill a wolf. Like, um, yeah. even yeah. if you're actually hunting them, it's, yeah. it's yeah. tough. They're so yeah. smart. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, there's, there's, there's elk around and it's just, it depends on the time of year. And, you know, a lot of people like where I am here used to be the Serengeti of BC, um, is not anymore. It's actually sad when you have, you know, I wasn't, I didn't hunt as a kid, but I still remember driving to and from, you know, the Valley and stuff. And in September, October, you know, every couple kilometers, it was no joke. You'd, you'd run into herds of 200 every wow. few kilometers. That's how many there were in the Valley and come, you know, cause oh. things migrate down to certain areas. And now man, you're excited. If you see a herd of 15, 20 yeah. and it's not every couple kilometers. Let me tell you that. Like it's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's yeah. Typically scary. on an elk hunt, if you get but if you if an elk uh, busted, you're you're continuing on going after that one elk. Um, you're not looking for an, for another one because there's very few chances chances of yeah. them being another legal bull around. Mm. So yeah, they're definitely the thinner than the legal bulls. Like yeah, I it has run, to be six on into, one side. Yeah, yeah, up here, I can run yeah. into fours and fives yeah. all the time, but to find oh, that oh. elusive six is tough. Yeah, wow. yeah. So it's got to have six on one side. You get up north and, there, and it changes a little bit, like way up in northern BC. Yeah. Um, it changes a bit, but, um, but then again, you get to northern BC and it, it gets a lot harder to get around. Yeah. It's yeah. not, uh, yeah. it's not <laughs> easy h- hiking like in the Rocky Mountains or anything. It gets pretty gnarly yeah. up in the northern part there. Oh, I bet. Yeah. They're so, big uh, down and they just get bigger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You guys got, uh, yeah, you guys got great, uh, great. Well, you guys, and you guys got way better management of everything more sure. money and um yeah it's just uh it's just sad what our our government does with our wildlife they kind of just use and abuse it so yeah uh what's your bow setup like i wanted to talk about that a little bit yeah uh i've actually got it right here grab it uh so i'm shooting the um this is the bow i hunted with all last year um pretty much shot this bow year round for whether it was 3d or target shooting whatever um so it's the matthews this is the v3x 33 uh running the hamski epsilon on it um the excel landslide i shoot the 310 um you know on the slider so i i hunted with it um with my pin set at 30 40 50 because i've got a 30 inch draw length 75 pounds so the difference between my you know if i use my 30 yard pin at 20 yards i'm only about three inches high Uh uh so for hunting purposes pretty much just aim where i would at 20 um if I really want to get picky, I can, you know, hold it on their elbow. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I killed a bunch of stuff with it last year. Um, performed flawlessly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For arrows last year, I was shooting the black Eagle X impacts. Um, they were, it's one of the lightest setups that I've run in a long time. Um, they were only 456 grains, which for a 30 inch draw length and 75 pounds, that's, that's pretty light. Um, but I had, no issues with them um the so i shot two two deer in maui was axis deer um, one was broadside and just double long i mean i would wouldn't expect any issues there um the other one the doe was quartered away at like 35 and it blew so i was shooting those grim reaper um pro threes they're actually an expandable head or mechanical whatever you want to call it and i was very skeptical of mechanicals you know i've never i've just heard so many horror stories um but the way they work is a little bit different and uh man it was crazy like it went it blew through her back rib 
you know, through both lungs, punched through her back shoulder and the, the veins, it didn't blow all the way through, but the veins were like stuck on the inside of her scapula. Um, so she went nowhere. Uh, and then I killed a little, little buck in late season. Um, that was, it was, he was close, but you know, he was quartered too. Um, and so went, you know, just, just, I actually just grazed his, his shoulder. Um, the same thing blew through a front rib, a back rib and broke the ball joint of his, uh, his hip in the back. So I was pretty impressed with a, a quote light arrow and an expandable rodhead that, that it would do that. Um, I did just change over. I just, I just like tinkering with things. So I just mm-hmm. built a set of these, um, the victory, the VAP SSs. Um, so it's kind of like Easton's FMJ, but it doesn't have the aluminum coating. They actually weave, uh, there's like these little micro stainless mm-hmm. steel fibers that they weave into the carbon. So you get that extra weight, uh, without, you know, having to bump up to a heavier spine that might be too stiff. Yeah. Um, so they're yeah. coming in like literally right at 500 grains. Um, the crazy thing is I went from shooting like 293 feet a second with the 440 grain arrows to i think it's like 286 now which is so not very much but my sight has, so far i've only shot it out to 40 yards but there's zero difference in my pins like really yeah. they're 60 grain wow. almost 60 grains heavier but they um yeah they don't there's no difference and i some of that is you know a light arrow comes out of the bow a lot faster but it will lose speed quicker it's kind of like throwing a ping pong ball. Yeah. Um, a heavier arrow comes out slower, but it maintains that speed better yeah. down. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know if I just got lucky and found that like perfect sweet spot of, you know, yeah. speed. Um, but it's been, yeah, so far I've been really impressed with these arrows. I've shot a lot of different arrows. I shot Easton for like 15 years. Yeah, I got nothing against Easton. Um, I do think Black Eagle and Victory have a lot better components, um, especially when getting into like the micro diameter, small and micro diameter shafts. Um, I think that's one downfall of Easton is their their components. They just I don't know. They don't cap over the end. They don't have any collar system. They just butt up right against the carbon, and they just always bend right there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been really impressed with these arrows. They're tough. Um, I was playing around with my thumb button the other night, and I said it. I was like, I'm going to see how hot I can get this thing. And so <clears throat> set it a little too hot, so hot to where it wouldn't actually hold the hook and sear. So I got about <laughs> three quarters of the back and the thing just cut loose. And I put one in the, oh, we got a bunch of like steel beams and there's there's rubber, like <laughs> rubber matting over it. I dead centered that steel beam and all it did was bend my field point. Arrow's fine. So yeah, yeah, uh, I, I've, uh, I've definitely done that. Yeah, of, yeah. <laughs> I didn't hit myself in the face, luckily, but it, yeah, it was a little bit of a surprise to say the least. So yeah, back yeah. that back that set screw out about two turns and now we're good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those uh, I see there. You got your your cable. Is, is it going down to your? I can't really tell. Is it going down to your limb or do you have it on your cable? Oh yeah. Yeah. So this is a point of uh, Wayne hated that I did this. <laughs> He's like, it's a limb driven rest. Yeah, I was gonna say. But the thing is, this yoke on a Matthews, this yoke and on like the PSEs, it moves in unison with the limb tip. With the limb, right? Yeah. So the further back you, you set your cord on a limb, um, the, like the closer to the, the tip of the limb, mm-hmm. the sooner your rest picks up and the later it drops. Mm-hmm. The further I run it towards the riser, the later it picks up and the sooner it drops. Um, so ideally, I want the maximum amount of support out of a rest while still not getting any contact. Mm-hmm. Um, this, you know, if you look, well, I don't know if this is going to be on video, but the, the yoke is basically directly over the axle. Yeah. So it's essentially like mounting it to the limb tip, but it holds everything closer into my bow. Yeah. Um, and it's just less 
cord to get caught on something. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not had any issues with it. I've been shooting it a ton. You know, some people say, oh, it's going to, you know, it's going to rebound. But I feel like if the yoke is rebounding, then the limb would be rebounding the exact same amount. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, sure. I'm not an engineer. I don't know for sure, but it seemed it's worked well for me. Um, so yeah, that's just what I did. Yeah, yeah, that's the first thing I noticed when you pull it up because they're, they're limb driven. I, I, so this year I started shooting the Omen, the PSC Omen, and I put that Epsilon rest on it, but I didn't like it because it's got the low brace height, and I didn't like yeah. th- there wasn't enough room. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. so close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I just I, stuff like that. Yeah, and I. I like shooting four veins on my arrows and I, there wasn't enough clearance for four with that, that rest on there, but I mean, there that, yeah, sorry, the rest, but uh, it's really nice rest. Pete, you're shooting the Trinity, aren't you? Yeah. I love yeah. that rest. It's... Yeah. We, you know, Hamski, I was just at the ATA show, which is the, the archery trade association, which anymore, it's not really as necessary as it used to be, but basically it's, you know, all the manufacturers go to this big trade show and yeah, all the yep. dealers go and place their orders for the year and check out new products and this and that. And, you know, talking to the Hamski engineers, they're, they're like, we're going for a, you know, a 0% failure rate. And right now they're about a 0.2% failure rate. So they're 99.8%, <laughs> you know, of the rest are not failing. Um, I can tell you, you know, working at the bow rack, we sold QADs, we sold vapor trails, rip cords, trophy taker used to be a really popular limb driven rest that we sold. Um, at the end of the year, you know, people would come in and something was wrong with their rest. Uh, so they all have warranties on them, which is great. Um, but we would take the rest, replace it for them. And then at the end of the year, we would send all those rests back and either get a credit or they would just send us more of those rests. Yeah. Uh, we had probably 35 vapor trails, you know, 20 plus QADs, bunch of rip cords, boxes of the other rest. There was one hamski and it was a dude who ran it over with his ATV. <laughs> Wow. That's pretty good. Um, I've got them on all my bows. I'm not going to say I'm the hardest on my equipment, but I'm not. I don't baby it either when I'm out there. Right. Um, and I've had zero issues. Wayne is really rough on his equipment. He's had zero issues. Um, so you know, I I push them pretty hard. Um, I just you know, it's kind of one of those things where they are they're really not that much more expensive than other rests. I mean, maybe 20, 30 bucks, but it's kind of the buy once cry once mentality. It's like, look, buy this rest. You probably won't ever need to replace it. If something does go wrong with it, they're going to cover it. So, you know, spend the extra 30, 40 bucks and just have a rest that you don't need to mess with for the rest of your life. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. There yeah. are definitely ni- nice rests. I wish there would have been a little more clearance. I put the, yeah. um, the prophecy on, I'm trying that. Yeah. He makes a good rest. Yeah, I just put it on today. Uh, sh- shooting through paper today. Yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it's, pre- it's a good rest. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, up here we don't get a lo- we don't get a lot of choices. So that's not one of the hardest things about equipment is is trying to get it and get access to it. So we either got to pay twice as much as it's listed for, and then wait three or four weeks to get it, or um, we got we got to pick up what they have at the bow shop, which isn't usually yeah. very much. Yeah, it's like a big tease so watching you guys, all you guys post all your fancy stuff that you have and be like, we want some of that. Be like, you guys so can't have this. Like if, you, if you call and order a rest from me, are you paying Canadian dollars or U.S. dollars? US. Well, we pay, we pay oh. Canadian, but then when it gets to the border, we got to pay oh. duty on it. And yeah. then we got to pay the taxes on the whole price with the duty. It's usually uh, about twice as much as what you guys. So if it's like, say it's selling for three, 200 bucks, we'll yeah. pay 400 by the time it gets here. And we usually got to wait with the, sh- the way things are now with shipping. Yeah, it's like, man, man. it's uh, it's expensive. Yeah, or it yeah. takes a long time to get. Which is the worst part if you need something right away and you're like, fuck, I just that was the thing. I, like I was shooting those SSs as well, and I couldn't yeah. get them anymore. Uh, 
and I was just like, oh man. So then I went, I switched over to the, the TKOs, which I could, and I bought up all the T I would doubt I liked them. And then I bought, I bought, uh, every one they had in a 300 grain or 300 spline count. I was like, I'm buying all these. I want them all. <laughs> so when I order from the States now too, I order in bulk just yeah. to save me, save me on the shipping. It's gonna, it sucks either way. So, yeah. But yeah, that's, that's a good rest. I tried. I really like it. Uh, that QAD, I, I shot. I had that on my last. I had the same Matthews that uh, you're shooting there last year, and I had the QAD on it. Good, but it's yeah. I mean, it so, uh, once in a while it just seems, especially in the cold, it 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 didn't seem to work as good as it it should. Yeah. So I wanted yeah. to get away from that. And that's too. you know, I so I spent a long time talking to the um, the VP of QAD at. ATA. Um, he had, he was just, you know, he's asking me like, so we noticed, you know, in your videos, like you're really into limb driven. What, you know, why is that? And which I thought was kind of an odd question. I'm like, well, try to find a professional archer on the planet that shoots a cable driven fall away. Like you won't find them. Um, they just, when they only support an arrow for five or six inches, it takes so much more adjustment in the bow to influence the arrow because the, the rest just isn't contacting the arrow for as long, which originally when they came out, that was a good thing, right? But now we're realizing like you still want maximum support, but no, no contact. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the reason you know, most pros, if they're not shooting like a limb driven fall away, they're shooting a blade rest because you get maximum support with minimal contact. Yeah. Um, I was telling him, I was like, you know, if you, if you could build a rest that you could still lock up, cause that's what one feature a lot of people like about the cable driven rest is they can lock that yeah. launcher when they're stalking around that arrow's not flopping around. So if you could build a limb driven rest that you could still cock up in that yeah. up position. And I, now, you know, ripcord makes one, you're about 50, 50, whether or not it's going to actually drop. Black all the time. I don't even understand the physics, how it works. Uh, but I was telling him, you know, if you could figure that out, if you could crack that code, you know, you would you would sell a ton of rest. Oh yeah, yeah, because that's uh, what I really like. Is I really like the ability to be able to flick it up and have my yeah. arrow sitting there, especially if you're moving around lots when you're hunting and going like up and yep. down, moving around, and you don't have that chance of that arrow. Exactly. Um, the other thing, you know, as far as I could tell from what he told me, the the mechanisms, that little inertia block that locks it up and then lets it drop on the shot. Whether you buy their $59 rest or their $259 rest, that internal mechanism is the exact same. Oh, yeah. So all you're getting with the more expensive rest is all machined aluminum like parts, like the launcher and the the you know you have your micro adjust and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, the guts of the rest are the exact same. Um, I think, and I again, I'm not an engineer. I don't know this, so I don't want anybody to take this, you know, and take it to QED and be like, oh, Kellen said this, but. I think they probably need to use a little like higher, higher end stainless steel, like the hardest stainless steel they can find. Because I think what happens in those rests is over time after, you know, 10,000 lockups and drops, mm -hmm. the, the connections in there, you know, just like on a, on a hinge release, like after a long time, your click is hardly even a click because that little edge gets mm -hmm. rounded off. Um, and I think that's when you start to see failure um, more so than just cord stretch. Because it seems like there's just kind of a countdown to failure on a lot of limb or cable driven rests. It's, and there's no warning of when it's going to happen. You know, a, a limb driven, if it's pretty easy to tell, if you look down and your freaking launcher is sticking up like that, yeah. <laughs> either your spring came uncoiled or you need to cinch your cord back down. Yeah. With a cable driven rest, everything appears to be operating at status quo. And then your arrow does a fucking front flip to the target <laughs> when you shoot. Yeah. And it's yeah. Cool you know so um yeah my brother did that he cut mine on me when we were shooting at 
at our folks' house one day. He was getting pissed <laughs> off at me, so he came up when I wasn't looking. He took it and he snipped my <laughs> my, my string on my wrist. Six feet low, <laughs> and I fucking went to shot and blows oh, up. I was like, oh. But yeah, I, that's I. I really did like that rest. Yeah, I was I was bummed out that it it just didn't have the clearance. It did, yeah. and it, that's a low. It's a really short brace height to begin with on that on that omen, and then when you add that that hemski on there, it just makes it even shorter. There's not a lot of room. Yeah. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, uh, you got anything else going on there, Pete? Any questions? Archery questions? No, not really. Yeah, I've watched some of your. It was funny when Kevin told me that you were coming on. I was like, that name sounds familiar. Yeah, I went on. I was like, oh yeah, sure enough. I've watched the the bear shaft tuning and all that kind of stuff on your videos, yeah. and I still haven't bear shaft tuned to this day. But it was understanding the whole concept yeah. of everything. And yeah. I also don't have a garage where I can shoot inside in a controlled area, so yeah. I have to drape a roll of paper off my deck and have it pinned yeah. at the bottom and hope for absolutely zero wind. As soon as it's windy, it's like, well, was that the wind or was that me? Yeah. Was it yeah. the blower? Was it me or was it the wind? You know, it's like this is stupid. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, it's pretty yeah. hard to uh, to paper tune, especially like to bear shaft tune in an environment yeah. like that. Yeah, you'd have yeah. to be inside. But yeah, so. it's uh, it's one of those things where you know, it, again, it it can getting the you know the spines are aligned correctly, and whatnot. It it can take a you know a four inch miss and make it a two inch miss, mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, it's it's not something that's gonna you know, make you all of a sudden increase your, if you're a target shooter, it's not going to increase your score by 10 points. You know, yeah. it's going to get you a couple more X's maybe, um, you know, maybe you'll catch that line that you didn't catch before. Uh, but I think, you know, people always ask me like, Hey, I'm new to archery. Like, like what's the best money I can spend? And I'm like, find a good coach. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. unfortunately that's extremely hard to do too. Um, you know, people get on the USA archery website and I, I spent a lot of time with USA archery you know, both shooting and then coaching. And honestly, it's, uh, I would steer people away from that. Um, I think the best thing you can do is get involved at a league, like go to your local shop if they have any sort of league or if there's a you know local club around like a 3D club or something like that. Go there, spend some time there. You're going to find out pretty quick who the best shooters are and then just start asking questions and just say, hey, you know, I'm happy to pay you for your time or if I can just, you know, if, if I... If you shoot every Saturday, can I come here and just watch you <laughs> and ask mm -hmm. questions? Um, yeah. When I was a kid, I didn't have a coach, but you know, we'd go to these national tournaments, my dad and I, and I'm sure I annoyed a lot of pros, but I'd go to the practice range um, and I would just watch these pros shoot and I'd take pictures of them with my I had a little digital camera at the time. This is like before cell phone cameras. So I'd take pictures of them and print them out and I'd tape them on my mirror in the bathroom because I had one of those big, like, yeah, you know, yeah. full mirrors. Yeah. And then I would stand there with my bow in the mirror and try to make myself look like they did <laughs> in the picture. And That's pretty awesome. soon I was like, okay, I'm like, I got to lengthen my draw length an inch or I got to, you know, get that back elbow down or up or whatever, move my grip. And pretty soon I just kind of figured it out on my own. Um, then when I got to college, I actually had a coach who, you know, a lot of that was more the mental side of things with target archery. But, um, you know, I, I think that's honestly the best route rather than getting on, at least if you're in the U.S., you know, USA Archery, they have all these instructors that are certified everywhere, but you don't have to ever shoot an arrow in your life and you can be a level three instructor. Yeah, like, that's the same you here. read the handbook yeah. and yeah. pass the test yeah. and now you're this guru. And it's yeah. like, you know, some of the shit that Maya would come back with from these camps, I'd be like, like, who is who is teaching you down there? Oh, dude, like, it's, it's, it's so funny you say that yeah. because I signed my kids. My kids, there's a program here 
and I wanted my kids to learn from somebody else other than me. Yeah. So I put, I enrolled them in this stuff and that are in this program and they're, they're certified instructors. Then I went there and I was like, uh, no, yeah. no, like, okay. Like, and then I didn't, I, I, I didn't, it was their class. I didn't say anything, but that was the only class they ever went to. I was like, nope, you guys yeah. are going to another one. That's it. Like, this yeah. is, this is, you don't need to be learning this stuff. Yeah. That was yeah. the, there was one coach that Maya had who he was good. Uh, Jesse Johnson. He was, he was money. He actually shot competitively for a long time um but man i would you know i would watch oh, some of these the junior dream team camps they call it the jdt camp uh i went down to a couple of those with you know with maya and oh my gosh the instructors would pick up their bow at the end of the day and be shooting and it's like dude every one of your students just whooped your ass like handily and they weren't even shooting that good at scores <laughs> like i mean they're yeah. shooting good scores but not that much and it's like how can you you know joel turner has a really good quote on that where he goes you know be very wary of people's opinions when it comes to archery he goes there's opinion-based archery and there is science-based archery yeah you know and especially when that comes to um you know tuning and i don't know the way a bow is, is set up and stuff and i'm not saying you can't get a bow to shoot well in multiple different ways um but you know like draw length it's like like we have a thing to measure people here it ne- they never end up at what we measure them at. They're yep. usually uh, at least a half inch, sometimes an inch and a half longer. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, and not every archer is the same. Like when Maya first went down there, um, they had all the girls shoot <clears throat> shoot a scoring round. She she beat the previous year's national champion by like four points. Then they told her that her draw length was an inch and a half too short because her front arm wasn't perfectly straight. It had a slight bend in it. Her D loop was too short. Her peep height was too low, all this stuff. Then they had them. So they changed all that. My, I mean, I had a video of her, like she was fully, I mean, you could not be more hyperextended in any way, shape or form. She couldn't even hold her bow up. So they had them all shoot at the end of the camp. She dropped like 30 points from what she shot before, but they told her, Oh, it'll get worse before it gets better. And I'm like, okay, that's bullshit. Like not every archer is the same. Like look at Levi Morgan. He shoots a lot more bend in his arm than like Paige Pierce does. Both are multiple time world champions. Um, There's, it's just like, you know, you look at the NBA, like, you know, Michael Jordan's shot is different than Steph Curry's shot. They both made it work. You know, it's consistency and what they're comfortable with to a certain point. They got the fundamentals, right. And then it's about adapting those fundamentals to the individual athlete. And that's my problem with a lot of these big, you know, things like USA archery or, which is really the only one I can think of. Uh, but they they just have this like cookie cutter playbook for everybody that comes in yeah. there. And one out of five, it takes and it works really well. But the other four are just sitting there thinking they're shitty shots when really all they need to do is shorten the draw like the half an inch or mm-hmm. lengthen the draw like the half an inch or, you know, shoot you less can usually, stabilizers or whatever. You can usually tell when somebody's, regardless, like they can be fully set up and you can tell when they're at full draw, dropping their pin onto their target. You can tell whether they're comfortable or not. Yeah. You can tell when they're fighting it or if they're not fighting it and they just sink into it. And it's like, that was yep. smooth. You're regardless whether, like you say, the elbow's bent or not. Yeah. You, you can see it in them. You're regardless. You don't even have to know archery. You can be like, why does that guy look or a girl look so uncomfortable when they're shooting? Well, yeah. something's not jiving there, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Or if it's just like yeah. smooth as butter, it'd be like, well, that was pretty nice and cool. Like, yeah. I mean, some people, like, man, I think, guys like chance boboff and jesse broadwater and those guys they're just they make it look so effortless like they come back they just anchor pin mm-hmm. settles just it's not this violent you know everybody breaks apart but some people it looks like 
you know, it looks like they're getting shot out of the cannon. And there, it's just this nice mellow, just punk. You know, hand comes back over the shoulder, front arm drives towards the target. It just looks comfortable. And then, you know, you see other people where it's like, man, how tense are you, dude? Like, what's your blood pressure at right now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think some people think that their arm should come flying back. Like they see it on TV and all this kind of stuff. And yeah. it's almost like they're over exaggerating at me. Like, it doesn't yeah, have yeah. to be like that. I, always, I see that. I see that a lot with guys, and they're like, they come up to full, they come to draw, and like they're not pulling through, they're punching the trigger, but then they're going like this. Yeah, they're on. going like this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, well, I, you're, you're missing the whole point of that. Yeah, I I always say that follow through is a reaction, not an action. Meaning, mm -hmm. if you execute a shot properly, the follow through is just a product of that, mm -hmm. right? Like if you have that even push pull and you sit there and, you know, whether you're pulling through the shot or rolling through your hand, when that shot breaks, those opposing forces are just that follow through is going to naturally happen. Mm -hmm. When this hand goes poof, and flies yeah. back four feet from your head, that's fluff. You're just, you're forcing yeah. that action. And that's just going to lead to a ton of inconsistencies because you anticipate it. That hand starts moving before the arrow's gone. Um, yeah. Probably the best, like one of the best um, pieces of advice that I ever got, or at least something that I could like visualize very well was uh, my coach in college used to say, tighten the knot. And what he meant by that was um, when you hit full draw, if you imagine your arrow as a piece of rope and there's a loose knot right in the middle of that arrow, mm -hmm. you want, if all I do is pull, that knot moves up the, you know, up the rope towards me if all i do is push that knot moves down the rope as it dies oh, yeah. if i push pull evenly that knot cinches right in the middle of the rope mm -hmm. and for me that like visual kind of that that mental picture or visualization really helped with my you know my quote back tension um and you know maintaining because if all you do is pull you're just going to pull your front arm your front hand down basically more or less mm -hmm. if all you do is push when the shot breaks you're going to throw that front arm if you get that even push pull you know, it's kind of like if you're bracing, if you had two walls on either side of you and somebody told you to, you know, brace yourself between those walls and pick your feet up off the ground, you have to brace yourself evenly. You can't just push on one side and expect to have any strength. You got to, you know, and you can't expand anymore, but you can push harder evenly on those walls and brace yourself against it. And that's kind of what you're doing with the bow. It's that even push pull to where that's what gets that pin to settle. And after the shot, the backhand comes straight back over the shoulder and that front arm you know, essentially drives that pin right through the center of the dot. Like you know, if you imagine you're just pushing your pin right through the target. Um, the other thing he would say was aim deep, meaning imagine you're shooting, you're not shooting at the dot, you're shooting through the dot. Like you're trying to push your pin right through the center of that, that spot. And those two things during follow through keep everything in line, in my opinion. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's a great way to put that. Like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Really good. That's one thing I always, I always, I always see people doing that. I try to give them advice, but I'm such a shitty person at explaining what they should be doing. And like, well, you look, like I can tell them like, okay, you're just, you're hitting the trigger and you're flicking your arm out. That's all you're doing. You're not pulling through. <laughs> like you're not, you're not like yeah. trying to put, pull your shoulder blades together and like, and they don't, they don't get it, but that's really good. I'm going to use that next time. That's yeah, like yeah. That. Tighten, tighten the knot. Yeah, just imagine yeah. just pinching that knot right in the middle and it like it really does when you come back and you, you know you hit that anchor point and that just as that pin starts to settle down you know a couple inches above the target boom it's that you know that yeah, yeah um, i like that where that yeah. front scap drives forward and your rhomboid contracts you know your rear rhomboid contracts that elbow 
kind of back behind your ear. And then, and then it's really, for me, it's about maintaining that, that pressure, just as if you were bracing yourself between a wall, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not trying to push the walls apart. I can't make the walls move, but I can brace myself evenly against them and steady myself. Yeah. And that's yeah. kind of the, you know, the mentality behind that, I think. So that yeah, was, like, that was, that was one of those things where there's few things in this sport that I've noticed where you get a piece of advice and it instantly changes your shot. And that yeah. was one of those things where as soon as I saw that, it was like five shots later, it was like, holy shit, they're just all piping right down the middle now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? I just switched just to a th- I just yeah. switched to a thumb release last year. I had a whole bunch of changes last year, but learning a shot process with the thumb release, yeah. um, one was amazing. Two, holy moly, can you ever feel the difference in when you're screwing up and when you're not? Yeah. And then it's a matter of the detailed stuff. I went and shot today for the first time since I put my bow down December 19th or whatever last day of hunting was. And I filmed it on purpose so that I could see the difference, you know, after I get a few rounds through. And the one thing I'm not even worried about anything else. The one thing that I was trying to make sure I wasn't screwing up on, and I know I got some work to do on it, is that exact thing is to not, you know, the difference between a finger punch and people using their thumb and trying to squeeze it. And that's not what you're supposed to do, you know, but that took me a while to learn that too. And that's what I'm trying to work on even more like to perfect that, keep that still. It's just that anchor point, but it's actual movement of your, of your shoulders going together, tying the knot that's actually pulling your thumb into the, into the, the trigger itself. And you know, the way I activate a a thumb button um, is really similar to the way I activate a hinge in the sense that I'm not, I'm not necessarily, I'm not pushing my thumb into the button. I'm pushing the handle into my thumb. So the yeah. thumb stays static. I've got a little more pressure on my index finger when I first come into it. Once that thumb is on there, and I so I, I, I build that back tension. I don't really pull harder once I have that back tension built. But as I, as I transfer the load from my index to my middle and my ring finger, so it's essentially like you're almost like relaxing like in your palm. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially what that's doing is is as I'm maintaining that back tension and I'm relaxing that finger, that starts transferring the load <clears throat> to my mm-hmm. my middle and my my ring finger, which is in turn adding pressure to the thumb barrel. And as that happens, because I have that back tension, my elbow is picking up that slack as as that you know palm mm-hmm. is extended a little bit. So it is pulling through the shot, but I'm not necessarily adding more pressure. I'm just maintaining the tension that i have and as i transfer that load my elbow picks up the slack and the shot fires it's almost like you're pulling your the thumb the trigger into your thumb right by pulling on the top there like because you're pulling back through but your thumb is not moving the thumb to the handle yeah and in practicing with it whether it's a hinge or an index finger or an index trigger or or a thumb button um i think especially if you're a newer shooter or you're trying a new release or even if you're an experienced shooter and you just deal with target panic like you have to consciously practice something to submit it to your subconscious. Um, so you hear a lot of pros say like, yeah, like once the pin hits the middle, I just kind of wait for it to go off. But what they don't tell you is that they spent four years thinking about that controlled process to get it to go off. And eventually when the pin hits the middle, that's the subconscious cue for them to start rolling through the hinge or mm-hmm. building pressure on the trigger. So for me, whether it's an index release, uh, a hinge, a thumb button, you know, I, there's some sort of mantra um, and cadence that I'll have in my brain um, or in my head while I'm aiming where, you know, that pin hits the target, you know, boom, thumbs on the trigger, I'm pulling and I'll say like, you know, squeeze one, squeeze two, squeeze three, or like with a hinge, you know, roll one, roll two, roll three. The goal is not to get it to fire on a specific number, but every time I get to the next number or roll, quote unquote, 
I should feel more pressure on my thumb or my finger, or I should feel that hinge yeah. moving. And having that kind of cadence and mantra in your head helps with that. Because I think a lot of people come up and they just freeze, right? Like you got to hold steady. So kind of an oxymoron, especially with a hinge, it's like hold steady while moving. Pete and I were actually, we were just talking about that, just touching on that. Just it's good practice to go from a hinge to uh, to a yeah. thumb if you are shooting a thumb just to keep that just to keep that motion. But I know what you're saying with a hinge and I find it too, is like, as soon as it clicks, you're not waiting. Like, it's almost like a timing. It's like one, two, three, click. And then it's like four, five, six, seven. And it's like, goes off. And like, you shoot that enough. And like, consciously, like you said, you remember that cadence of like, it's just a matter of time. Like, it's just in your head, you know, it goes click. And then it's just like, it, yeah, you can, you, you know, it's going to go off. Yeah. And what's funny is like, when I'm coaching people, like they can hold on target and roll to the click, no problem. And then as soon as it clicks, they just freeze. They just hang up and then they just oh. rip it off. Oh, yeah. They're, right. they're focused on waiting for the actual. Like, oh, shit. oh, shit. It's about to go. It's about to go. It's about to go. And they start over aiming and trying harder. It's like, just click and just keep rolling. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. If yeah. something crazy happens, then yeah, let up. But just, you know, it's, and it just takes, you have to practice with a purpose, right? Like so many people go out and just, they just fling arrows for the sake of flinging arrows. And they're not actually like building any particular skill or bettering themselves in any particular department. They're just, they're just ingraining bad habits or, or maybe not ingraining bad habits, but they're not building better habits, right? They're just, yeah. they just plateau because they never focus on one aspect of the shot. Yeah, so. yeah ex exactly. I, I know a lot, so many guys that do that. They're like, oh no, I shoot, I shoot hundred arrows a day. Okay, you're shooting 100 arrows a day, but there's a reason that after this 100 days that you can't lift your bow because your your shoulder's so sore. Yeah, like, like there's a reason why you're doing it, right? Like they're drawing back and their elbows up past their top of their head, and it's like okay, yeah. like there's and it's so as hard. As soon to, as you're tired, you should stop shooting. Yeah, well, if they're drawn just... back properly, then they shouldn't have that at all. Like you should be able to shoot 100 arrows no problem if you're if you've been shooting long enough. Yeah, you shouldn't yeah. have that. You shouldn't have any problem with that. Cool, man. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Um, yeah, appreciate it. Why yeah, you just, thanks for having me. That was a good but, talk. Yeah, man. Always fun talking uh, talking bows and bow hunting and archery and bears and all the fun stuff. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, why don't you hit up the listeners and just let them know where they can find and follow you and check out your content? Yeah, um, if you go on YouTube, it's called Inside Out Precision. Um, got a bunch of instructional videos, gear reviews, stuff like that. Uh, if you're on Instagram, it's the same handle, but there's an underscore between each word. So inside underscore out underscore precision. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I'm probably not as active on Instagram as I should be. I just, it's like a necessary evil, but I, <laughs> I try not to stay off, try to stay off of it. Uh, but there is stuff on there and there's links to, you know, different videos and stuff like that. So, um, you know, feel free to message me on there. I, I'm a lot more active in the in the direct messages in my dms uh than i am on the the posting and reels and stuff like that but uh feel free to ask questions i try to get back to everybody um but you know if i take a couple days i i do get a lot of message on messages on there so um sometimes they get buried um if you don't hear from me within a couple days you know just shoot me a text or shoot me another message and say hey never got back to me and uh, i'll do my best to answer any questions so yeah, cool, man. I'll put all that up That's in the awesome. show notes too. And uh, yeah, thanks again, buddy. It was yeah, uh, thank fun, you. fun to meet and fun to talk. You got anything there, Pete? Yeah. No, just uh, appreciate it. Like, yeah, check out the videos, guys, because uh, I've checked them out. They've been really helpful on understanding the mechanics, everything about what you need to do.
even if you don't do it, you'll understand the whole process of it from start to finish a lot better. Make you yeah, better and I guarantee you, if you've Googled anything, you'll probably come across one of your videos. I Absolutely. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in to the Focus Hunting Podcast, coming at you as part of the Waypoint Outdoors production. Pete and I wanted to thank all you guys, the listeners, for tuning into the over past 100 episodes of the show. This journey has been a lot of fun for both Pete and I, and we couldn't do it without your guys' support, so we really value that. And uh, you're going to notice a bunch of promo codes down in the show notes. Use them, save a bunch. Love you guys. Until the next time. go out there and the fish are where you think they are any one of these casts could be the bite it's the most exciting fishing that i know right here at hawks cave oh that's awesome experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer don't miss thursdays with saltwater experience brought to you by golden boat lifts every thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.